Once again, it'd be really, I think, a great help to you and to me if you had your Bibles open. And if you didn't bring a Bible uh, with you, there are some in the back. So uh, do take a Bible uh, and, and, and look down uh, as we go through the passage. And it's uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Well, I met somebody, someone, um, earlier this week who said that his parents, he used to go to church for about 20 years, 20 years. But when his grandfather passed away, his father stopped going to church. I have a cousin who committed suicide when he was 16. And it was the first time in my life when I willingly stopped going to church. I had a friend who had been a faithful Christian all his life, um, studying with me at the Divinity School. But when the tsunami, the Indonesian tsunami hit in 2007, he started to read about the consequences and he became clinically depressed. He was angry with God. And there are those of you who are going through some of this, I think, yourself, economic hardship, death of a loved one breakup or divorce or other hardships and are asking, why? Why is this happening? The Ephesian church, too, might have been struggling at this point with a doubt. Paul says in verse 14, the beginning of our passage, he says, for this reason, he kneels before the father to pray. What is the reason that he kneels? I think the clues are up in a couple of verses before, verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, he affirms our right and privilege to pray. He says, in him through faith, truth in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. If I try to go see the CEO of Hong Kong right now, I probably can't. If you try to go... um, see the president Pujintao or Obama or whatever, you probably can. Maybe there are some of you who have that kind of access. But um, we have the access to the almighty God, Lord of lords and master of all masters. I have access to God and I can approach this God with freedom and, and confidence because I know his son. Because his son paid the price of his blood for me to have that access. So first reason he's kneeling before God to pray is because he can pray. Because he can go to God with freedom and confidence. Because it's such a privilege that has been won for him. So he goes before God to pray. But more than that, he uses that right. He uses that access because he's concerned. So he continues in verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. If you can look at the beginning of chapter three, he started with a reminder that he, he is a prisoner for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the Gentiles. And if we see in the beginning of chapter 4, the verse right after our reading, he reminds us again, as a prisoner for the Lord, that he is in prison suffering for the Lord. And what he's praying is that 
his suffering, his being in prison, would not discourage the Christians in Ephesus. And we can imagine why Ephesian Christians might be discouraged at this. Because Paul just so majestically described the blessings in Christ, the hope of Christ, the power of Christ, the love of Christ, and the unity of Christ, and the plan of Christ to bring all things to himself in unity, the mission of Christ. He described God's plan that stretched all the way back from the beginning of time. Remember in chapter 1, we were elected before the time, before the creation of the world, all the way to the end of time, the hope that reaches end of time. How can it be then? Paul is in prison because he became an apostle for this gospel. How could it be that God with all power and might with this plan would allow Paul to suffer in prison? It's the same question that we ask ourselves often, often, don't we? God, why do you allow this to happen when I know that you love us? When I know that you have the power to bring an end to all of this? So to the church, that might be wondering about the sovereignty of God, about the goodness of God, he prays. And I don't know if you caught that. He prays for their faith. He prays that the Spirit, that God would strengthen them through Spirit so that Christ would dwell in them through faith. His biggest concern is that Christ dwells in people's heart through the power of the Spirit. That, um, that word dwell, to dwell, Paul could have used many different words to indicate that dwelling. But according to Bishop Moore, the specific word used here denotes residence against lodging, the abode of a master within his own home as against turning aside for a night of a wayfarer who will, gone, will be gone tomorrow. In other words, what he prays for is that Christ would make a home in your hearts. Permanent dwelling place, permanent home. Not the kind of home that he stops by and leaves when the doubt comes and when the difficulties come, but a permanent home in their hearts. This is a picture of somebody buying a house, not to, uh, not to, uh, and not not liking some of the things that are there, right? Um, make uh, paint, painting the walls, um, bringing in new sofas, hanging up the pictures. He's praying that Christ would do just that in your hearts. That Christ would make himself home in our hearts. That we'll be cleansed of all the filth and the darkness and of doubt. And this is done through the strengthening of faith. So we read in verse 17. So that Christ may may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Faith is of utmost, utmost importance for us, since Christ, to us, dwelling of Christ means everything. So Christ, uh, Paul prays for the strengthening of that faith. We think of faith oftentimes as this small thing that's tucked away in our lives, that we bring about whenever we need it. Um, Jesus tucked away 
that small part of our soul. But the text assumes the presence of the one who gives shape, who gives strength to the core of our being, who takes up residence in us and redefines who we are. He's praying for that firmness of faith, the transformation from within, in spite of the doubt and suffering, in spite of the things that we don't understand. The gravest danger when we face cancer, financial trouble, bad exam results, heartbreaks, even death is not uh, uh, the, the things that I've just mentioned. The gravest danger when we face all these things is the spiritual dimension of it all, is the doubt that creeps in, is the weakening of our faith. So first thing is first, Paul turns and he kneels before God and pleads that God would strengthen their faith, that Christ may continue to dwell in their hearts. And this kneeling, Jewish people usually stood as they prayed, he kneels here. He prays to the Father for his brothers and sisters, for their faith. So, the first question that I want to ask to the church is really, when was the last time that we have prayed for the strengthening with power through the Spirit that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? I have a little book with all the prayer requests written down, and uh, um, it's, a, it's a book that I go through uh, daily. Um, what is written in your prayer diary? If I can guess, it's things like provision of money, good exam results, soothing of pain, for guidance, jobs. He prayed, Paul prays, this is the first thing, the foremost thing, that out of his glorious riches, according to his glorious riches, he may strengthen us with power through spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in us through faith. And I think that's the first thing that we have to remind ourselves. That, 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 that first thing is first, strengthening of our faith. But then he moves us onto something that faith allows us to experience. So look to the second half of verse 17 now. He prays, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. As a tree is rooted and established in the ground and draws water and mineral and life itself from the ground, Paul prays that the church will root itself in love. And the practice of love. Of course, Paul just talked about um, the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. People who were separated by the dividing wall of hospitality. Uh, hostility. hospitality would be an entirely opposite thing, I'm sorry. If you can imagine Japanese um, and Chinese. Right after the Korean, uh, right after the, the World War II, I'm getting all kinds of things confused. Right after the World War II, together in one building. That's sort of the picture that we get, isn't it? It's people who hated one another, people who were at war with one another, people who thought that one group was, uh, was fodder for, for flames of hell, 
they're now together and they're now united. So Paul obviously prays for love, for that community to be deeply rooted in love. They needed love towards one another. But I think this is what's surprising. He says that the church should be rooted and established in love. He goes on in verse 18, so that that we may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. Paul says, we want to establish ourselves in love so that we may be able to grasp a little bit of how God loved us. The dimensions, the infinite dimensions of God, God's love for us. In other words, those who haven't loved, those who don't love, actually cannot really understand what God's love means for us. I have a friend whose dad told him he's a forever bachelor. Um, he's getting older now. Um, he's never dated anyone. So he's, he's, his father's getting a bit worried. He's, his father told him, look, unless, unless you get married, and unless you have a kid, unless you hold a child, your child, in your arm, And unless you feel that longing and the love for your child, you won't know how God loves you. Well, I don't think you actually have to go that far to experience God's love. What Paul says here, though, is that we we should be able to experience a little bit of that love here within the church with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can taste a little bit of, a, of that love when, God, when we experience God's love through other people, when we experience help from other people, unexpected words of encouragement, just attention that, that we haven't gotten elsewhere from elsewhere. We taste the sweetness and the warmth of God's, God's love for us. But... We also experience God's love. We also know a little bit of what God's love is like when we love one another. When we love our sisters and brothers in Christ, we can also taste the self-sacrifice, the difficulty of loving, the bitterness of loving. We can taste that as well when we love. So both receiving and giving of love. And when we root ourselves, when we are established in that kind of love, we can taste a little bit of God's love for us. But this love is too grand for only one person to grasp. Paul says, I don't know if you caught this, in verse 18, together with all the saints... We may have power to grasp the infinite dimensions of God's love. Together with all the saints. If a man says he could stop going to church but experience God's love for us by himself, that's not possible. That's not a biblical, uh, biblical thing to say. As John Stott memorably says, it needs the whole church of God to grasp the whole love of God. We, as a collective unit, as a church, in the act of loving one another and in receiving love from one another, in receiving the transcendent love from God for each one of us, all of that together, 
we can grasp a little bit of how, how, how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ. And this love is broad enough to encompass all mankind long enough to last eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinners, and high enough to exalt all of us to heaven. And when we grasp that love collectively, we can know, we can begin to know God's love for us. But here is another sort of um, paradoxical thing about what he's praying. In verse 19, he moves on to say, to, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He prays for something that is actually impossible in the end. He prays for us to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. This love is essentially unknowable and inexhaustible. And we will spend the eternity getting to know this love. Um, if there are those of you here in the church who says, I know that God loves us. If you feel that you know God's love for you already, Paul says, you're wrong. You, can't, you, you only begin to grasp God's love for you. And we will spend the eternity getting to know this love. The only thing I can, um, only thing that I can think of is there are moments in our lives when I think our parents or our loved ones surprise us with their love, isn't it? Um, the moments where we go, "Wow, I didn't know that this person loved me that much." I've had that experience with my parents, you know, when they've been so self-sacrificial, and I just thought, "Oh, wow, my parents really do love me." It's that kind of thing, isn't it? For the rest of eternity, we'll be surprised constantly. We'll begin to grasp a little more and more and more how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And according to the second half of verse 19, knowing this love fully and being filled, knowing this love fully is being filled to the full measure of God. Jesus said, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Jesus in John 17 prayed that the love that God has for him will be in us so that he may be in us. And that's the logic of this passage, isn't it? As we experience this love, we'll be, we're being full, filled with the full measure of God. And that is the experience for me as well. I think I do remember when the day when I became, I'm just amazed at God's love. Um, I remember my eyes welling up because I once, was once again overwhelmed with love and I couldn't believe just God, how God could love a righteous sinner like me. And that is what it means to be filled with Christ, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. And that is what Paul prays for the Ephesian church. That's the second thing that he prayed for. And that's what we should be praying for one another, that we should 
once again, root ourselves, establish ourselves in the practice of love so that we may grasp a little bit of uh, the, the transcendent love of God. But this prayer, as we move um, to the next verse 20, we, we see that it naturally ends with doxology, the words of praise. I think this is also very true. Praying people are praising people. People who pray are moved to praise. Even in the midst of trouble, even in all kinds of um, difficult circumstances, praying people praise God. Why is it? Why, why is this true? Why does Paul naturally end this prayer with a praise? Remember, he knelt before God, the Father, and prayed for his family. Once again, he prayed to his Father, and that just moves uh, him to praise. But not only that, as he approaches the Father God, he's reminded of who God is, who his Father is. So Paul describes to whom we're praying in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We have images of who God is in our minds that do not merit contemplation, devotion, or obedience. Our God is often too remote, too small, too disinterested, too inept. In fact, our God, our image of God is a lot like us. And so, in fact, we ask God the things that we ask, we would ask only of one another. Uh, to another human being. But God of the Bible is not too small. I've recently been praying that God would raise up more small group leaders or to have um, a couple more people on the music roster. God can do much more than that. What have you asked recently for yourself and for each other? What is the biggest thing that you've asked God recently? God is able to do immeasurably more than that. Not only that, not only he can do immeasurably more than we can ask, he can do immeasurably more than we can imagine. And I can imagine a lot of things for this church and for all of us. I've asked and imagined that this church will be firmly rooted in faith in Jesus Christ and the love of God. That it would be a church that people can come into and say, wow, God lives here. That it would be a presence of God's, uh, uh, it would uh, be God's presence in Hong Kong. That it would be a reminder of God's presence in Hong Kong. I've prayed for the children's and youth group to continue to grow so that the church would grow in depth and in numbers. In a short while, we'll also launch a small group um, program so that we'll be able to learn together and also love one another in it. I've prayed that we'll move out of this building into our own building. All of this, I pray with great confidence, filled with great hope and confidence, not because I know some formula for, uh, uh, for some secret formula for success, not because I'm that great, not because you're great. 
But because God is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, because His great power is already, already at work in us, and because God wants to be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever, throughout the generations. God's power is already at work within us, and we need to be more aware of that, and we need to be more expectant of his power. So, I mentioned this um, just now, but I want to look at just a little phrase in verse 21. The last thing, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. As you look around the church, you can tell that it's not a perfect church. And if you ever find the perfect, perfect church, people, people say, I, I don't join that church because you'll ruin it. <laughs> it's filled with people like you and me. And who, if we're honest, we're not that great. I'm very selfish. I, uh, the little, um, just, just the, the, the thoughts that come through my mind, if you know the thoughts that come through my mind, and you think, oh man, maybe I should go to a different church. Just little phrases and thoughts that come throughout the day when I face trouble or whatever, betray who I am. We're not that great. But God wants us, God wants to be glorified in the church. God, this doxology strikes us in its proclamation of glory in the church. There's no other time in the Bible where this phrase is mentioned. God is glorified in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. The church was never a divine afterthought. It wasn't something that God thought, ah, we should have a gathering of God's people together. It was never a divine afterthought. It was at the heart of God's plan from the the very beginning of time. It is for the sake of the church God became man. It is for the sake of the church that God became mocked and, 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 and wore the crown of thorns and crucified on the cross. It is for the sake of the church that we can experience the resurrected power, the end time power, now that God rose again from the dead. It is to gather all the people in the churches like Shatin. Christ died and is seated on high and sent his spirit. And God will be glorified in the church throughout generations, forever and ever. And that starts now. The end time has begun now. Sisters and brothers, the church is not an optional part of Christianity. Failure to meet with other Christians in worship and instruction is not a legitimate option. Individualistic Christianity does not exist. We need other people to understand God, to help to, to understand a little bit of, of, of what that love is like, to edify one another, ultimately to glorify God. The church is the place now and throughout the generations 
where God is given honor and glory. Just as Christ is the evidence of God's redeeming love, the church is the evidence of God's transforming and uniting power. Yet, it has its flaws. So we continue to pray, as Paul did, 